Two Week Nose Podcast. Yo, what up, everyone? You are listening to the Two Week Notice Podcast. My name is Dana B, and I am your host. Thank you so much for listening. Today, we have a very special guest, and it is Luke Garrow, the drummer for my favorite band, Piebald. Luke's also a very good friend. So this was really cool, and um, I just really enjoy doing this, no matter who I'm talking to. But Luke, thank you so much. This was an extra special one because... Even though, you know, he's he's a friend of mine, and even though he's one of my favorite people ever, I still, during this conversation, learned some stuff about him that I didn't know. That's what makes this fun. It's really, really enjoyable for me. So I hope you enjoy it. But before we get into that, we do have a new sponsor. All right? So listen, listen. The Two Week Notice Podcast is proudly brought to you by Canvino, bottle quality wine in a can. Try some at www.drinkcanvino.com. Once again, www.drinkcanvino.com. I am shocked that no one's thought of this earlier. You know what I mean? Once I found out about this, um, I was like, holy fuck, how is that not a thing already? Wine in a can. Get after it. All right. You get the idea. Go drink that shit. In the meantime, what else are we doing? Two Week Notice Podcast. Oh, so we do have a giveaway for the first time ever on the Two Week Notice Podcast. I'm giving away a vinyl in honor of Lucian Luke Garrow coming onto the show. I am giving away a brand new, fully sealed vinyl, Accidental Gentleman. That is the last full album that Piebald has released. And there were only 500 copies pressed on gold vinyl. So really, really cool collector's item and just a killer album. Actually, all the sounds that you're hearing as far as music on this podcast is from the album Accidental Gentleman. Aside from one moment, you're going to hear a little monkey versus robot clip, you know, like because it's relevant to the conversation Luke and I are having. Aside from that, it's all accidental, gentlemen. So if you want to win a vinyl for free, that is super, super rare. It's very hard to get these days. Um, go! I challenge you to go find it elsewhere. It ain't easy. Dare I say impossible. Here's how you win it. All you got to do, first of all, you got to follow me on Instagram. So my handle is at Dana Fuggin B, D-A-N-A-F-U-G-G-E-N-B, Dana Fuggin B. So what I need you to do is hit me up on Instagram, and you can do a combination of things. Either follow the podcast or subscribe to the podcast. Hit me with five stars and or write a review. Take a screenshot of any, any of those things, any effort that shows you know that you're helping me um, gain some listenership on this show. Send me that screenshot on my Instagram. I will enter you in that raffle automatically. And that's it. It's that simple. And I'll, I'll give it a little bit of time. 
and whatever. You literally have nothing to lose, and you're helping me out, and you might win a free piebald vinyl. And if we have enough entries, I might have a couple other piebald uh, surprise items to give away. So there you go. That's it. Two-week notice podcast. Luke, I love you. Thank you so much. Enjoy. We are rolling. Can you hear me? Okay. I can. <laughs> you can. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'm crying, but we're I can both, hear you. We're both crying and laughing. A lot of emotions right out the gate. We right. have one of my favorite mm. people here, Luke Garrow, the drummer of Piebald. Luke, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing good, Dana. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Dude, thanks I'm for being very excited here. about this. I'm very excited about this too, man. You're the best. Uh, this is awesome. So, uh, you know, it's nice to see your face too. Um, you know, I'm just going to get a fan question. Right out the gate, I got a fan question. Are you ready? This is Are from... you the fan? Or is no, this from... Well, I mean, okay. I don't. Uh, I also <laughs> want to know the answer to this question. So I, I guess um, yeah. this is from Alyssa. How do you stay so handsome? And is it is it related to your vegetarian diet? Oh, geez. Starting right with a question like this, are we, Dana? Um, You look good, buddy. First of all, thank you, Dana, and thank you, Alyssa. Um, (laughs) I I don't know. I I don't know that I can, uh, you know, pinpoint whatever I'm doing, but I don't know, man. I just live life being me, and uh, I eat healthy. I try, at least. No, I party. Come on. We're all in this together. Um, no, there's, there's, uh, I don't think any way to answer that without sounding like a head of uh, ego. We're making a blush so, right out the gate. Next question, Dana. <laughs> next question. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, um, Luke, so you keep it moving, buddy. Well, well, all right. How's, how's the farm? Farm is good. Uh, we, uh, just got five new baby chicks yeah. a few days ago. Um, so that's fun. Yeah. Springtime, you know, all the flowers are popping up. I'm thinking about what I'm going to plant um the horse is doing good we got a pony Pony that's that's a newer addition right yeah yeah i'd say about a year ago so you know my daughter is 10 now and uh she asked for a pony and she won that one (laughs) (laughs) and so the story goes so i'm gonna let Alyssa redeem herself here her her second question was give me a rundown of the animals on your farm Okay. So currently I have one pony, as I just mentioned, we have four ducks. Um, and now we have five chickens. They're all different varieties, but they're all, um, hens. And, uh, we have one cat. And then if you count me, I'm another animal here. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. That's pretty good. I like that. You are an animal. You're a beast at yep. the drums. That totally counts. I try, buddy. I try. So uh, you recently got a new job or a promotion, new job, both, kind of. You want to talk about that? Because it's it's totally related to music, and it's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And it's um, it's actually an evolution of, of where I was in a weird way. So right now, I am the general manager of Noble and Cooley. 
it's the oldest drum manufacturer in America, located out here in scenic Western Massachusetts in a town called Granville. Um, it's been around for 165 years, literally. You know, the company was making Civil War drums and uh, continued on through, you know, in, in, in the 80s, kind of focused on the custom drum side of the operation. And that's that's kind of what it's evolved into. Um, so me being here is very interesting. I and, and I'll try to make this uh, what could be a 20 minute story, about two minutes. I started a marketing agency actually a year before I joined Piebald. So to date myself here, this was in 2000. And did that kind of the last year that I was in college and then kind of did it off and on as I was um, touring all the time with Piebald and that became my full-time thing. And then as that slowed down, I went back to being a guy at a marketing agency and it was interesting because we, you know, it was something I founded and got to go back to it and keep doing it all these years. And so long story short, I, I merged that in with another company. Um, and then fast forward, the owner of that company was also an investor in Noble and Cooling. And as this whole uh, COVID thing hit, which I'm sure you're familiar with, um, <laughs> you know, a tough decision was made to shut down the content studio that we had built under the agency that was out here. And, you know, in the same breath, he was telling me that they were going to do that. He also said, I have this other thing for you if you want to become the general manager of Noble and Cooley. And, you know, without even batting an eye or thinking twice, I said, sure, let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so now I've been there for, what, seven months, a little over seven months now, and feels like I've been there for years. Um, but it's cool. You know, we have this giant kind of compound of buildings out in Granville, um, and there's a small number of us that work there, and it's, it's a very cool spot. It's very historical, and we make really, really awesome high-end drums, and I get to see the whole process happen and kind of help do everything I can operationally as, as well as the marketing and everything that goes between. That's almost like um, the stars just aligned kind of thing, you know, one of those meant to be things. If you believe in that, you know what I mean? I mean, you certainly um, put, put the work in, so I don't mean to discredit that, you know, you worked really hard to get to where you're at, but just the fact that it worked out the way it did. Sure. Yeah. There's, there's certainly the stars aligning aspect of it. It's quite serendipitous. Uh, not only, you know, me being a drummer, and this being such an interesting drum company um, at a point where you could really use kind of a, a boost in the help that was there to kind of take them to the, ne the next level. But the fact that it's also out here in Western Mass, and you know, for those of you familiar with Massachusetts, yeah. if you live in Boston, you think Worcester is Western Mass. Uh -uh. Um, if you live in Worcester, you, you think Springfield is Western Mass. And if you live, live in Springfield, you think the Berkshires are Western Mass. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is even further, you know, this is further out from where I am and I'm outside of Springfield. So right. it's kind of out there in the middle, you know, the middle of nowhere. And uh, the fact that it's so close to me and it had this opportunity, yeah, it, is, it is quite, uh, you know, perfect. It's definitely the perfect gig for you, if there ever was one, aside from being the drummer of piebald when that opportunity opened up you know what i mean um so let's let's talk about oh, your... yeah I mean, come on, nothing yeah i was gonna say nothing is more perfect than being the drummer of piebald right i'm so rich off of this that <laughs> well i mean you know i don't like, know what to do with everything <laughs> just like like the monkey versus no, robot i know but just like the monkey versus robot yeah. kind of thing if you're gonna have a job um you know then that's just perfect for you man and you're one of the hardest workers 
I've ever met, you know, whether it's like in work itself or on your farm. I mean, that's a full-time job and then some in its own right. Right. I mean, you literally have a farm, dude. That's, that's yeah. work. But I want to yeah, talk that's about my nights and weekends. I want to talk about um, just, you know, I, I like to do a little timeline thing. So I don't know you grew up in Connecticut, maybe talk a little bit about that how you got into music and growing up and, you know, your first couple of bands and what eventually led to like in my eyes and piebald and stuff like that. Yeah, totally. So I grew up in this town called Glastonbury, which is outside of Hartford. Uh, got into music my freshman year of high school. And that's actually the same time that I started playing drums. So relatively late you know I, know, I know a lot of musicians and I have a lot of musician friends that are like, I started playing drums when I was, you know, four years old and never stopped. And I'm like, wow, you know, I started playing drums when I was 15. <laughs> uh, it was just, you know, a transition in my life going into high school. You know, I, I had always been a soccer player and stuff like that before. And I think I, I gravitated towards uh, alternative music or grunge or whatever was coming out at the time. And luckily had some older friends who took me to shows and from there just started getting into, you know, what were seen as underground bands who had cassette demos or seven inches that I could get. Um, and then that just kind of kept spiraling, you know, made a lot of friends that were not in my high school, which was at the time so different, right? Everybody in my high school hung out together. And then there was a group of maybe, you know, five of us that had friends from all these different towns all over Connecticut and people couldn't understand what that was about. Um, and yeah, just focused a lot on going to shows, playing music. Uh, for me, I had always taken this weird approach to being in a band. We, we literally started playing shows probably within a month of learning our instruments. It was me and my two best friends and, and some other kids I went to school with. And it, it was completely focused on, we just got to get out there and be in a band. Like that was, that was our focus, you know? And I remember one of my friends one day saying, I'm going to start playing guitar. And another one was like, I'm going to play guitar too. And I was like, all right, I guess that leaves bass or drums for me. I'm going to be a drummer. No offense to bass players. Um, and, and luckily my parents were supportive and, you know, bought me drums and let us rehearse in the basement. Um, and, and yeah, within like the first year of playing music, we had gone into the studio and recorded demos and then pretty quickly, you know, I'd say over like a year and a half time period, went through like three different band names. Um, and then my my friends and I started this band called Tenfold, uh, which was like the first kind of, I'd say, legit hardcore band that I was in. You know, we actually had records out on Bridge Nine Records, which is still a label. You know, Bridge Nine was actually founded by Chris Ren, who was from Glastonbury, Connecticut. Yeah. Um, and then from there, you know, played shows, met the guys in Fast Break through mutual friends. And this is actually a really interesting, really interesting start how I joined Fastbreak on the way to one of their shows at the Bristol Skate Park. My buddy said, oh, their drummer's not going to be at their show. The singer's going to be playing drums. And I said, no way. I said, uh, throw, on their, throw on their demo. Let's listen to it a few times. And I learned two of the songs like on a half hour car ride to the show and then showed up and said, hey, guys, do you mind if I just jump up and play these songs? Sick. and they're like yeah totally do it so i i jumped up and just ripped in these two songs and then they're like so can you just join fast break and i was like totally dudes um Sick, so I was two, yeah two bands at the time and then you know fast forward a little bit we all we all meeting like a lot of my friends went up to boston you know we all got into different colleges there 
and then that's when we started in my eyes, which was, you know, friends that we had made and or people that we knew before we even went up to Boston. Um, and so I was kind of doing two different bands at the same time. Uh, Fast Break was on a label with Piebald, Big Wheel Recreation. Which Big Wheel. Run out of, yeah. Run out of the apartment that I was in. Uh, so I just knew them from that and from playing shows. So we became fast friends uh, and, you know, we're always just kind of supportive and playing shows together and stuff. And then, yeah, I think from there, you know, kind of, kind of history, I, right as I was about to graduate college and the hardcore bands that I was in had kind of winded down at that point, they were like, Hey, we're, we're releasing a new record. We're going in the studio. We're going to start touring full time. And our drummer um, thinks he wants to, you know, kind of do this record, but then focus on his family and his career. And do you want to play with us? And I said, sure. And literally a month after I graduated college, I was just touring probably for the next six years after that. <laughs> and that, so that you replaced John Sullivan and from the rest is history from there. I mean, I've, I've heard Travis say someone asked him a similar question on a more recent podcast. And um, I believe he, I'm paraphrasing, but he pretty much said, yeah, I can't imagine doing it without him referring to you, you know, obviously, I mean, you've, it's been 20 years now about, so I don't know, man. And do yeah, I, that's right. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you better not think about doing it with someone else after all this, after all I've done. That's right. Travis. <laughs> Travis. <laughs> no, um, but you know, I, I don't know. I mean, you're all, uh, you're all just the best. I went through this with Andy. We don't have to go through but, it again, but you know, um, I, definitely say you're all a bunch of weirdos oh you're all totally a bunch of weirdos and that's why i mean who lets some fucking random weirdo like me show up with a cowbell and and i don't know kind of like him and kind of accept him (laughs) but what i was gonna say was a lot of that's thanks to you you were the first one you like gave me your phone number and uh whatever we were texting or facebooking and and you and uh ben maitland lewis um Back in uh, the the Bamboozle show, you know, he and I got along really well. And then right around that time, maybe a year or two later, the Piebald DVD release happened, the second DVD. And he hosted that party, that DVD release thing. And I don't know, you were there, Andy was there, Ben was there, we spoke. And I don't know, five years later or whatever, six years later, I showed up with a cowbell and here we are talking now. So thank you for that. Yeah, I man. think is what you're, I'm trying to say. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm out of my fucking mind. I'm a weirdo, just like you guys. That's all, you know, weirdos just trying to have a good time, you know, cut from the same cloth in a, in well, a lot hey, of ways. Huh? You know, passion goes a long way. You know, yeah. when, when somebody's very passionate about something that can get easily recognized and, you know, you have that, it's like, you're very enthusiastic. You, you literally showed up with your own equipment and said, Hey guys, I can do this. And when, when you see somebody like that, who's just, you know, prepared and proactive and down to do it, you'd be an idiot not to say, all right, let's, let's see what this guy's got. Let's, let's give him a, let's give him a chance. See if you can not only be, uh, you know, uh, kind of feeling the flow with us on the stage, but also somebody who can hang out with us too. And, and so far you're passing the test data, but you know, I don't want to make, I don't want you to get too comfortable. Yeah. I still got to keep you up with those. So keep trying hard, buddy. All right. That's it. No, that's, I, I respect that because that's like the corporate side of you. And I, I get that too. I listen, I was in the corporate world too, Luke, I get it. And you're, but you're totally yeah. right. I, I know you do. You're a hundred percent right. 
never let them get too comfortable. Um, and I never will, you know, but, um, I'm always every show, you know, like, cause you know, when I first joined you guys in my mind, uh, that was when we were with Limbeck and that band facial, like out on the, the West coast. I didn't know, like, as far as I knew, that was a one-off thing. And then all of a sudden, Hey, Boston calling is going to happen. Cool. You know, I, you know, all of a sudden maybe riot fest happens. Cool. Like I never take it for granted. So, um, you know, when that dashboard thing came up, that was just beyond special. That was really cool. Speaking of the dashboard tour, what was your favorite, favorite venue from that and favorite show from that? You can name a couple just highlights. Mm -hmm. Highlights. I think this is an easy one. I'm going to start with one show in particular in one moment. I, I think it was Austin at Stubbs, the outdoor venue. You know, and we had just left New England in February, so it was freezing here. Kind of thinking, oh, we're going down to, you know, some southern states. We'll hit Texas. It'll be, like, nice and warm and different. Um, and it was, it was freezing. We played outdoors, and it was cold. You could see our breath. Uh, you know, we had to, like, be rubbing our hands before we got on stage to get through it. And... You know, very shortly in a dashboard set, it started snowing. And for a lot of the people there, you could tell Dashboard is one of their favorite bands. They know every lyric and they're singing along and they're there with their best friends. And, you know, from, from what I'm told and what I know, it doesn't snow very, very often in Texas. And yeah. so it was this very magical thing where, uh, you know, everyone's outside. It's this cold night. And then all of a sudden it starts snowing and everyone's singing their hearts out to dashboard. And I was like, this is just surreal. Yeah. Been, um, that was but, a special moment. That's yeah. That was I, I just got cool experience. I just got goosebumps as you said that. Just like it kind of took me back to it because yeah. I remember it vividly. And I was actually I was on another podcast and I pretty much told the same story that you just told. And uh, the the dude was just like he goes if that's not a dashboard like moment, I don't know what is, you know, like it, mm. like almost like one of those, like this should be like a dashboard yeah. music video from that show or something. That was, uh, that was really special. Absolutely. And from a, from a merch guy's uh, point of view, can you explain merch world to people? I don't think I've ever ex properly explained that. So Aaron Stewart built this, this, and it never came in handy more so than that show. Yeah. So you want me to explain our merch world, the custom thing that we built? Yeah, that, it's it's brilliant, dude. Well, we should give it a name first of all because we're we're I thought um, it was, classic I th for like naming our vehicles. I thought it was called Merch World. Yeah, I feel like that's an okay name. I think we can do better. The, so maybe it's a takeaway for you. <laughs> uh, now, before we hit the road again, personify that sucker. All right. I will. Uh, so I will. <laughs> I'll say I'll say this. Highball has always been a very, very streamlined crew. In fact, we're, we're notorious for showing up to shows with just the four of us, which is kind of unheard of. You know, most bands have like equal number of crew members to band members. We literally at most will ever show up with two people besides yeah. the band. Uh, so there's just duties that get very neglected that are part of our road show and merch is always one of them. You know, we we're bad at packing it up. We're bad at displaying. We're bad at all these things. And uh, going into this tour, we're like, let's be better about it. So we built uh, what would hopefully be both an awesome display, but also an awesome way to store and and organize and move the merch around. So yeah. basically, this giant you know rectangular road case where all the merch is neatly stacked on shelves, but then the lid becomes 
a sign. So it flips up and goes and attaches to the top. And we, we even got these big piebald letters and attached them to it and had all of the merch displayed in a fixed way. So it's all connected to it. So you don't have to set it up every night. You just pull this thing out and screw it yeah. up. And I'm like, this is, this thing is great. Almost uh, like a so, food yeah. truck style, right? Like a food truck totally. you know, pops up and boom. And I remember it was the holiday shows, um, which was just a month before that dashboard show started. You know, we were just you, Aaron and I, I think, you know, Travis and Andy had parted ways. It was you, me and Aaron going to your house and we were like unloading all the merch and just talking about how the shows went. And that's when you guys started like drawing that up. If I'm not mistaken, I don't know if you remember that we were in your basement, dude, like just drawing that up. And Aaron was like, I'm going to have this built. I will have this built a month later. Boom. Like (laughs) he had it built. And, uh, yeah, it was just, it was king, dude. Like that thing is the shit. It, it's like the, it, everything's already like, like you said, you pop up the one panel, one wall, you pop it up and it's got the display on the inside of the wall. And then the shelves that are there, it's already organized by size. So small, medium, large, XL, whatever. And then I would just refill them, you know, each night. And it was, uh, and it looks nice. Mm-hmm. But it, that Austin, Texas show, man, you know, there was really nowhere to set up the merch at all. Like nowhere. I don't know if you yeah. remember the setup in that venue, but I was, I was on like a hill, like a, a cliff basically. And uh, I don't know. It just really proved to be a, a brilliant move um, because it was just uh, really hard. Uh, there, I don't know what else we would have done if we didn't have that. I would have just been standing out there with boxes, yeah. you know, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Well, it's not every day we get to say the the words "brilliant move" and "pieball" together. So let's. let's oh, stop it! That's not true. <laughs> I think it's very fitting with pieball. No, you know, I'm, I'm a little self hitting DIY. All right, Luke. So you join Pieball. Yes. What's What's the first yes. like? All right, the first show you ever did with Pieball. You must remember that. Tell me about it. Oh, geez, do I? Was it with Thursday? I, this is a great question because I actually went to shows with them when John was still playing and I have those confused with what I actually started playing or when I actually started playing. Um, I actually don't know. I remember very on doing a bunch of shows with Thursday. And to me, those were the first shows I ever played with Pieball, but I actually probably played shows before that. All right, tell me the first show you remember where you were involved, even if it was, you know, maybe it was you um, transitioning with John. Or maybe it was, you know, something else. Um, I remember playing in upstate New York. I want to say it was Rochester at a venue up there. It was us on Thursday. And we did, uh, you know, several more shows on that tour with them after that. Uh, and I just remember it feeling like a continuation of all of the types of shows that I played leading up to that. Like, it wasn't that dissimilar from, you know, the shows that Fastbaker and Myers would play, except, you know, it was getting more into this, uh, I don't want to call it rock, you know, but just a little bit more different from hardcore shows, but still kind of same type of clubs, same kind, same kind of vibe and everything. Right. Um, yeah, no, I don't know. It's, it, we did so many shows when I first joined that it's tough to remember specific ones. So you jumped right in. Um, I believe you jumped because um, it was right around. We are the only friends we have. And that was when, Pieball did like something like 300 shows in, in one year. Like it was mm-hmm. basically a show every day. 
So can you tell me about that year? Like that must have been, the, uh, I mean, you jumped right into it. So can you talk about that? Yeah. I joined months before We're the Only Friends We Have came out. So that came out, I think, in early 2002. And I started playing, the first shows were probably October of 2001, around then. So it's funny, we toured for a while, you know, and it felt like, it felt like I'd been in the band probably for over a year. And then all of a sudden, We're the Only Friends We Have came out. And, and then we just kept touring even more and then moved to Los Angeles it, well, like while we were still touring, it was, it was kind of crazy how that all happened. So what was probably an 18 month time period felt like years, but in hindsight, also it happened so fast. Right. Because we would just go from one tour to the next and, you know, we're, we're doing shows with so many different bands. And then between that, we would just do our own headlining shows. And, and yeah, it just, it just kept snowballing. I remember being on tour and, and just, calling up our agent Matt Galley, who's you know one of our best friends and and being like just keep keep putting shows on and so while we're on tour <laughs> we keep getting like listings of like okay here's where you're going next and we even went to Europe I think twice like back to back with American tours so yeah we would just end a tour and drive to the airport and fly and <laughs> that's so rad and then be there for a month and come back and be like okay we have a week off and then we're going out again that's uh, crazy we have apartments I think I think Andy and Travis had an apartment in Somerville that we would basically stay at between. Um, but I didn't have an apartment for, you know, a while until we moved to Los Angeles. And then even coming back after that, I didn't have one. So you're on this tour for a year, year and a half. You have this apartment or Andy and Travis have this apartment in Somerville in the midst of touring. You get this house in LA. Is that correct? That's crazy. We decided we were going to move to Los Angeles. And yeah. a few of us went first. This is, an, I'll, I'll try to piece together what I remember this. I remember Aaron and I being out there and looking for apartments while we lived with a friend of ours. So for a month, we didn't have anything and we were looking for one and then we found one. And then I think at some point, Travis and Andy were there. I, 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 I honestly don't remember the exact timeline, but I remember just saying, we're going to move to Los Angeles and going there without any place to live. And then we eventually just found the perfect place for us. Wow. And that was it. This you might know. be helpful. When, when I had Andy on here, he was talking about how you, Aaron, and Andy all lived out there. And Travis came out later because he was getting his surgery. I don't know if that helps you time Time frame wise, timeline wise, because he had his, he had his throat surgery. Now I know it, we're we're getting old, and it's it was a while ago. <laughs> Not ringing a we bell. Are. We are. <laughs> no, I, I I remember Travis getting surgery. I don't remember the timeline of if right. that stalled him from moving to Los Angeles or not. What Andy said. I'll take was, it. I'm going with Andy's story. Yeah. <laughs> Guy. what he said what andy he, said he goes he, he goes man i wish we bought that house because because we had the opportunity to and it's worth more now i mean obviously hindsight is 2020 kind of thing but um yeah but that's cool man like you, you guys all lived in a house in la like you moved out there and you were you were doing it you were doing it um but before that so can you talk about the europe tours i think some of that footage is on your first dvd yeah we we did a few tours there uh, always, always an interesting time. Um, Europe's a very fun place to tour. Um, very 
very different than the U.S. They're very in tune with hospitality. You know, you get fed um, multiple kind of meals at a venue. In a lot of cases, you stay at the venue. They'll have like, you know, rooms that are almost set up like a hostel there or or you stay very close by. Uh, You know, you have a driver. So we we didn't do any of our own driving when we were over there. Europe's the shit, man. The United States is like the Walmart version of Europe. (laughs) like europe's Europe's like the mom and pop (laughs) yeah there's there's definitely different i mean there's pros and cons in either scenario you know i like the freedom of turning around the u.s a little bit more yeah you um but i also like the very short drives (laughs) europe has for the most part because it's yeah you know it's honestly between some shows we would drive like an hour and a half and we'd be in a completely different town (laughs) you know right Um, right. different country yeah it's fun different countries yeah Dude, yeah. so what's your what are some of your earliest memories of Europe? Like, do you remember the like? Well, have you been to Europe aside from with Piebald or or with bands? Yeah, let's start there because I had actually been there twice already uh, with bands. So Fast Break went once, and In My Eyes went once. Sick man. Um, the Fast Break tour was probably the most. I wouldn't say memorable, but uh, most impactful in my life because it was the first time I'd ever been to Europe and we were teenagers. Wow. Uh, we, were, we were basically 19 when we went. I think, I think one or two of us was 18 and we had never been there and we weren't told much. All we knew was that <laughs> the hardcore bands we idolized, all of them went to tour Europe and there was, you know, agencies where, they would just be like, okay, cool. We'll book your European tour. And they're, you know, we, we didn't even really use email then. I'm talking like 1998 or 99. Wow, man. And um, I, I just, I remember like not, we had so much confidence in it, but like not knowing much, like to the point where we were like, okay, we're, we're told someone's going to meet us at the airport and we didn't have phones, <laughs> we didn't have anything. And so we show up and, and lo and behold, just a guy with a fucking, a guy meets guy us with a sign. Yeah, yeah, doesn't speak to us much. Uh, <laughs> brings us to a club in Belgium that we were going to play at weeks later. This place called the Lintfabrik, uh, and uh, leaves us there and we're to sleep there and gives us money. And it's all like you know uh, what it was. They didn't even. This is pre Euro, so it was whatever the the money right. was. Oh France, yeah, whatever the local currency. Oh, yeah. good point. Wow. And we don't know, so we don't know how much money it is. We're like, cool. <laughs> and then we we're there alone for two and a half days. Holy uh, shit! They just left us in the club. Didn't tell us where to get food or anything. And there's, <laughs> luckily, there was like, I think like an Aldi right across the street. So we just walked there and get food, and then walked into town and found a restaurant. Wow, um, man! And you had no idea how much what you had on you. We had, had no idea, bucks, but we were in this club bucks. and it was fun. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and so the play, the club that we were staying at like people would show up and and like open it up and hang out there so we would just go down and hang hang out at this club and then sleep there wow um, so it was, it was such a weird experience of how we got introduced to like here's here's how you're going to start your first tour and then of course you know we get picked up by a driver and then we're on this tour and and it is it was just that kind of like naive uh outlook on like we had we had no idea anything about any of these cities we we're going to and um we we're on tour with a band from the U.S. that we didn't know until we got there, and do you remember the one kind of surreal experience after another? Do you remember the name of that band? Yep, it was this band from New York called Cause for Alarm. 
they're like a new york hardcore band um a little older than us and uh yeah it's cool all over it was it wasn't just belgium right yeah it was all over europe or like western europe all over yeah mostly mostly germany but we certainly went to um italy we went to switzerland sick man went to uh we were supposed to play in croatia but it got canceled because like some like uh politician got like assassinated the day before we were supposed to go there so we go there um we went to switzerland uh norway sweden oh you went to scandinavia too wow man yeah Whoa, so how long yeah, was that I mean, tour? Like a month? Uh, uh, yeah, like a month at most. Wow, dude. I feel like, does that even happen anymore? Just like a band of... Probably. Well, obviously, I yeah. So. I, I, get, I don't know, just like sleeping and like sleeping in the club, like you said in the beginning, and then just, just showing up and I guess in its own new way, right? It's different with cell phones and stuff now, but I don't know that the story is just, that's fascinating, dude. So uh, what, what yeah. do you remember as a highlight from that tour, aside from what you've already mentioned, like, you know, I know when you're on tour, it's really hard to, you don't, you don't always see the places, right? I mean, you, you, oftentimes you just load in, you play the show, you load out, you sleep, and then you move on. But uh, I don't know, like you must've saw some cool shit. Anything that stands out? Uh, absolutely. And so I'm still talking about this fast break tour. We yep. played in rome and the venue we played at was an old medieval castle um and it was it was run as like a self-contained compound to the extent where and this is going to sound really strange because this would never exist in america uh to the extent where they wouldn't allow the police in there like it was their own like sovereign (laughs) sovereign place and there was literally like a moat that we had to drive over and once we got in, they had like like shops and stores. Like it was this whole self-contained place. And there was like You dogs. sure it wasn't the Vatican or something? Holy shit, man. No, it was like this, <laughs> it was like this medieval castle. Um, and like wow. uh there was like wild dogs running around and just you could tell like squatters, people that live there and whatnot. And then the stage was this like you picture like a big like cavern, almost like a train tunnel. Um, and there was I want to say there was like eight hundred people that maybe came to this concert uh and the stage is like all the way on one side and the, and the stage is literally like it was really tall i remember being like six maybe seven feet tall and it was leaning forward so like up on stage oh. picture picture we're all like it literally like it was noticeably leaning forward so you're on this slanted stage and i, I remember just setting on my drums being like i hope they don't start rolling or sliding forward um Dude. we just we display this big show and, and then we slept there and so we slept like in this castle um, after playing a show. And I just remember being this like, this is one of the weirdest experiences I've ever had. Do you remember the name of it? No, not at all. Oh. It almost uh, it almost sounds like Mr. Burns's mansion released the hounds, you know? Yeah, yeah. Wow, man. That's a great story. All right. Yeah. So you come back now. I do want to get more into some of the piebald stuff, but this sounds like right around the time. Frame sure. While you were <laughs> sure, sure. Um, it sounds like right Let's around the, do that. the same time frame where um, can we talk about the Yankee suck t-shirts for a minute? Yeah, absolutely. Cause that's a cool story. I would love to get 
you know, those guys on here too. Um, but it's just a fascinating story. It really is. I mean, to the point where ESPN did a 30 for 30 on it um, in the podcast world. Have you heard that podcast that they did with those guys? I know it exists, but I haven't listened to it. It's really, really good, but it, it was that big of a deal. So you can explain it better than me, but um, basically um, I'll try to introduce it and let you take it from there. So me right. as like a seventh grader, I'm in middle school. My dad takes me to a Red Sox game. This is like 1998, 1999-ish. Pedro Martinez mm-hmm. was, was you know, there, Nomar Garcia Parra, whatever. And my dad takes me to a game. And there's a guy on the side of the street, could have been you, I don't know, selling a Yankee suck t-shirt. And I was like, dad, can I get one of those? And he goes, yeah, sure. He goes, just don't wear it to school. Of course I wore it to school. But I had this Yankee suck t-shirt. Little did I know the history behind it. And little did I know that it had a connection like with you and, and, and the hardcore scene uh, uh, in general, like a huge connection to that scene so i'll let you take it from there man tell me your side of that story if you can yeah well i think the context that you laid out uh helps kind of frame the passion that went into this so yeah this was at a time where the the Sox still hadn't won a world series since 1918 um Mm -hmm. perpetual underdogs and so obviously the yankees were kind of the, the hated foe how a bunch of hardcore kids got into making and selling these t-shirts is interesting. So my recollection of it is, you know, it, it, we had a deep crew of friends back then, and we were all kind of trying to figure out how to make money in different and interesting ways, some above the line, some below the line. Um, this band Tenured Fight was playing their last show on Lansdowne Street. Um, and it, it was 10, 17, 99. It's the famous date, which it's also, also has become National Edge Day. And also, Lansdowne Street so, is right behind the Green Monster of Fenway Park. Yes, so okay. Lansdowne Street is a row of clubs right, yep. right on the other side of the Green Monster. Yeah. So our friends made a set of T-shirts that you know were these Yankees suck shirts, and on the back it said, you know, Ten Yard Fighter, TYF, ten seventeen ninety nine. So they're basically sold as last, you know, show shirts, but also just have the, this Yankee suck message on them. I think they ended up selling them all on the street to people that probably weren't even there for the show. You know, maybe some people yeah. bought them too, but I yep. think it became a bigger thing and a little bit of taste of that, that, you know, good old fashioned moolah there made it. So they're like, Oh, let's show up at, at every Red Sox game now with these. And, and quickly, you know, a group of four of them basically started this, this underground operation where they had t-shirts printed and then they would bring in, us kind of the people they lived with and their whole crew of friends to help sell them and so with pretty quickly um there'd be you know up to like 20 of us down there we each had our our own spots and we were each given like an allotment of t-shirts and these things we you know i couldn't hold them up fast enough they would they were literally i would hold one up and 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 it got to the point where people were looking for us because you couldn't buy these at the souvenir shops and the souvenir shops hated us and all the people that are doing this rightfully so we're, we're not there um legally i don't think selling those so but it just became this thing where you, you, we would literally all just meet up you know, around the sixth inning seventh inning or so and we'd be given our bag of shirts and everyone would disperse and you know sell them within 20 minutes and then meet up at an apartment and kind of count the money and hand it over and then say when's the next game and you know you can imagine with some of these home stretches there'd be 
eight, eight, nine games in a row. And you'd be like, yeah, dude, this is great. Yeah. And, you know, we were all, we were making more money than if we had jobs doing other stuff and we were spending a lot less time. And it was a kind of a fun thing that, that just kind of spiraled, you know? And you were living in Boston and uh, it's really cool how this, like uh, in this ESPN 30 for 30 podcast, uh, one of the dudes, I, I don't even know. What, what are the names of the guy, the guys? You, I know you know the guys. Uh, you're going to have to look it up. I'm not going to give names. You All right. That's, I, I, you know what, that's bad. Discriminate these no, friends, I don't know. But... I mean, <laughs> no. I, the guys come out and tell the story. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I'm, no, I'm no. not trying to rat anybody out here. There was... They come out and one of them worked at Fenway Park. They were selling like lemonade. He's like, I'm selling fucking frozen lemonades here in April and it's freezing out. And everyone's chanting Yankees suck at a Blue Jays game. And, and like, so that's what gave him the idea. Uh, that's yeah. I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially like how he tells the story, like how it started. It's just an amazing story. And uh, he, he was telling he was saying how there were times that they had to run from the cops a lot and other mm-hmm. stuff. And uh, but I don't know. Um, it, it was to... definitely a nice glimpse of like, uh, <laughs> you know, a, a, uh, a low risk, a low risk criminal enterprise in that sense where like there wasn't, you know, there's a lot worse things happening out there, but this certainly was in, in the kind of gray area of being legit, but they, they got to know like the code enforcement agents right. that would be down there. Like it was, it was, it was unique like that. And you kind of, you could kind of picture like, Oh yeah, of course. Like you get to know the people that are trying to bust you and have this personal relationship. And that kind of just makes it easier for when they're going to kick you out or try to do whatever, you know? And I, I always thought that was interesting where, um, they actually got to know the people that were ultimately there to get rid of them. Right. <laughs> and would, and figured out how to work with them uh, and kind of listen and say, Hey, well, what are the rules? Can, if we stand back 50 yards or whatever, can we do that? And, and right. eventually kind of figured out how it could exist in a somewhat more legit fashion. Um, and there was competing, there was competing operations. There was, there was definitely at least one other Yankee sub stuck operation that was there. And, and I, I almost want to even say it was there before was was kind of their first or at least had dabbled with being there um and that became contentious so, yeah you know, like literally you know kind of pushing people off territory physically yeah it got um, territorial yeah yeah and then and then from there once they were once i think they were kind of pushed aside anyone else you'd always see like you know every other week some random person would show up with yankee shirts and that's when it got like they, they got booted right out by the people running this operation because they're like no way if you're just one person showing up this late in the game we're gonna get rid of you it's just a really fascinating story and i don't remember how it came up but one day you uh aaron and myself were sitting on your your front porch somehow it came up and you guys were talking about it and i was like wait a minute you guys you guys know about that and you were like do we know about that we fucking sold those shirts bro and i was like no way like because i had just listened to that podcast um that's a fascinating story and talk that's a better example of time that'll never happen again i mean that could be part of the reason they closed off yaki way like you you used to be able to walk down yaki way you can't anymore without having a ticket to the game Mm -hmm. on on a game day you know um oh that's pretty rad but uh all right so fast forward right Mm -hmm. you get the house in la Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? What was that experience like? How long did you have the house? And mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, you guys were you guys were in it. You know, you were you were at the peak of like the release of "We Are the Only Friends We Have" and and touring. Yeah, 
Yeah, Pieball decided to move to Los Angeles. Uh-huh. Yeah, we had we had a few friends that were out there. Actually, the guy running our label and who's also managing us at the time lived out there. Uh, one of my best friends, Neil, had moved out there, and uh, Don, the, the guy that is one of my best friends still to this day, wasn't um, Neil in Fast Break. Neil was in Fast Break. Don was in Fast yeah. Break. Neil's so, the like, man. You know, we had, I don't know Don, we had friends that moved out. Don's a man too. Yeah. Um, and so we we're like, yeah, let's do it. Cause we we're like, all right, you know, what do bands do to get taken seriously? They moved to Los Angeles or, or New York. And sure. we're like, let's do LA that we like the weather. Our, some of our friends are out there. Um, we happen to find the most ridiculous house. Uh, and by ridiculous, I mean like for what we were paying for and what it was, it was just this very, very perfect house for us. It was, it was up on a hill in Los Feliz and we converted it to be five bedrooms. I think it, I think probably more like a three bedroom house. We literally built a room for Travis under it. And then we turned um, this front porch into Aaron's room. Um, it sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. So we, we made it a five bedroom house and uh, it was surreal. You know, we had like, you know, uh, grapefruit trees and an avocado tree. And Andy had this really big, awesome room with his own bathroom. And he, and he had, he was the one who had like all the video game setups and a really nice TV. So like, We'd all hang out in his room and play video games. Um, and then I had this room off in the back where it was like a patio that opened up to this like, you know, private little deck out there. And uh, Ryan, our, our uh, former cowbell player. Dana, my hero. My hero. hero. Um, Shout out to Ryan McGaff again. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan McGaff. Ryan lived yep. in there with us. Um, so it was just such a cool experience. And none of us had real jobs when we were there. I think maybe Ryan found some work that he was doing, but no one really had a real job. We were just rehearsing, you know, in a practice space we had like four or five days a week. And then it seems like every every night people would just come and show up at our house, whether they're invited or not. We would just like drink beer and play Risk until the wee hours of the morning. And Hell then, yeah. you know, wake up, wake up, go to a farmer's market, go rehearse, come back and play Risk. It was like kind of a weird, you know, a very surreal life that, at the time we we're like yeah we're being musicians this is what it's like where in hindsight i'm like i can't believe that we were just out there playing music and that's all we did you it's know? so rad dude yeah the toughest thing is figuring out like oh where do we eat right now or whatever <laughs> that's incredible man so while you were there uh, well how long were you there i should ask one year one year a full year but you were one on tour in this oh, house you were on tour a lot of the time yeah i'd say at least six months of the year so you move out what year is that now i know that might be hard i don't know uh end of 2002 into 2003 so you tour some more is that what andy said do andy and i have the same time no uh we'll say yes i didn't actually ask him the year (laughs) totally 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 corroborates your story um so this kind of leads into all ears, all eyes all the time. Yes. Ultimately. Yeah, we, we definitely wrote a lot of those songs when we lived out there and we demoed several songs that ended up on that record while we were out there. I mean, well, Uh, when you moved out, I guess you don't have to get into it if you want to, but I'm just, I'm curious as to why you moved out. Cause you moved, you moved to LA to, you know, you're a band, you moved to LA to be a band together. You, you're there for a year and then a year later you move out. It just didn't work out or I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. 
No, I don't think that it, I don't think that it was that it didn't work out. I think we ended up touring so much that we were like, oh, maybe we don't need a place to live. And then I kind of remember some somebody being like, I can't stand it here anymore. Let's move back. Okay, uh, <laughs> that's normal. That's okay. Um, yeah, and it, you know, we're kind of like, okay, cool. Let's 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 go. I think I think we we're also planning on recording all ears and knew that we would probably spend two months recording it back here right and so it just kind of made sense yeah let's go back and do it so it didn't make so you're paying rent at a certain point you're paying rent and you're not really there right Mm -hmm. essentially okay that makes sense so you record all ears all eyes all the time and that was your first uh time recording a an album with piebald and um, the, mm-hmm. the very first DVD covers a lot of that. And I don't know, I love that DVD. You're hilarious on that DVD. You're just like, it opens up with you. You have the camera. Does and it? you're like, uh, if, from my, if my memory is correct, and I've watched it several times, I'm pretty sure it opens up with you. And you're just like, you know, it's really hard uh, doing this stuff. You know, I'm all this uh, thinking and using the internet and, and stuff, you know? really hard i don't know it's fine i guess you had to see it Sounds did you see good. it <laughs> um i don't know that i actually watched it no i'm sure i have <laughs> isn't isn't it funny to refer to it as like oh your dvd like it's just so funny that it's yeah, those aren't really like outdated thing right now it's totally outdated you should get that on netflix bro it still holds up think about it yeah, you're the marketing guy a, yeah we're working on a major deal with them yeah <laughs> Totally. Me. totally. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm going to need help counting all this money, Dana. Oh, listen, hey, hey, <laughs> I'm here to help. All right. Yeah. I got a question. What is your favorite song to play on stage? Hooey, hooey, yooey. Uh, got to pick one. I'm going to go with Monkey vs. Robot. Classic. Classic. I like playing that one. I like the odd times and that it's upbeat, but also breaks down. I'm, you know, I'm a hardcore kid at heart. I like, like, I like me a good breakdown. Hell yeah. Um, that's fun. And then, uh, obviously when a crowd is kind of feeding back and, you know, that makes you play a little bit more intense, a song like that's great. Cause there's such good sing-alongs that you can literally yeah. hear people over us. And that just makes us kind of you know, jump into it more. It, that, you know, that rad yelling part, we're nobody's robot. I mean, yeah, it just gets, it gets really, uh, yeah, Dana, I, I know how the song goes. <laughs> it was, it was for the listeners, Lucian. All right. I know you know. All right. All right. Well, you... listeners, listen to the song because Dana doesn't, that wasn't good. Okay. No, hey, hey, shit. That's good, buddy. Yeah, I You're know. Awesome. You are. You're awesome. We're nobody's robot. We're nobody's monkey. We have the best job ever. Yeah, we really. What's your um, what's your favorite song um, on a record that you've done with Piebald? Ooh, ooh, this is a good one. Uh, let's see. I like oh the congestion mm, tune. So good. I like I like haven't tried it. I really like our version of Strangers. Yeah, it's a fun song to play. 
Um, Great choices. Yeah, like friend of mine, friend of mine's a good song about Mike Mike Parzielli. I love Oh the Congestion. That song fucking rules. Yeah, I like that's a fun one. So good. Do you think now this comes? This is an indirect fan question. I have someone who frequently, uh, Yanni. He actually he helps produce this podcast quite a bit. Uh, he's always asking, he's like, yo, man, I'll carry a keyboard for you guys. If Travis will just play some, some of those songs with a keyboard, he's like, I'll, I'll drive that thing around. Like, is there any thought to playing more of that stuff? Maybe that's a question for Travis. I don't know. Oh, what? You think I can't answer that? You totally can. I don't, well, I don't know. See, he writes the set list. I don't know. Uh, you're right. He does write the set list. We make him, we, we rely on him to do all that. Uh, so we we keep we we keep going back and forth, right? When we did those Christmas shows, we had the keyboard, right? Um, and we played a few of those tunes. We always go back and forth. I think where we net out is we like playing those keyboard songs sometimes, but in terms of the energy that it gives to a show, it's very different having Travis stand up playing guitar with nothing between him and the crowd, but you know, the mic stand and then to sit down behind a keyboard um, where like, even like in, you know, some, on some stages where it's not that high of a stage, he kind of disappears to the crowd, even in in some instances like great Scott or something like that, where it's like not a huge stage, he kind of disappears. And so we were like, you know, it's fun to have sometimes, but as a permanent thing, um, it literally almost comes down to like, just like the physical space on a stage at times too, because it we play small stages and a keyboard takes up a lot of room. It does, and it, dude. And it's in front, of, it's front in front of him, and even on a lot of stage setups, it can cut him off. I've seen him be so close to the drums that it cuts off whoever's to the left, which is usually Aaron. So Aaron gets his own spot. Which let's be honest, Aaron needs his own spot anyways. So he's, he's got to do those leg kicks man yeah, yeah nobody should be too close to aaron so it kind of, maybe it's a good thing but it, it it does add a weird dynamic it like cuts the stage off and aaron's over there so we always like to have that debate like should we do keyboard songs and and are these the right venues and i think we'll always kind of have it and then not have it and then have it and then not have it that'll just right. be the ongoing thing i think great scott is a good, uh, good example that's a tight stage and but also, you know, those those home shows like in New England, it it's um, they're usually headliner sets. So they're longer sets. So it's easier to to justify it as opposed to when we're opening up for dashboard and it's like a really tight 40 minutes or yeah. 45 minutes or whatever it is. Right. Um, yeah, because in order to justify having the keyboard up there, we have to do at least like three keyboard songs. And when you only have 40 minutes, putting 15 of it towards songs where Travis is sitting down just doesn't make sense right totally that makes sense to me but it makes sense that it doesn't make sense (laughs) so um memorable shows Luke can you give me one oh god give me your most memorable show all right this is uh gonna be like a two or three parter most memorable show you already answered the dashboard tour so most memorable show in the last 10 years like new piebald era and then most memorable show in the the mid two thousands. Jeez, Dana, gonna hurt my brain. All right, uh, most memorable okay. show in recent yeah in recent history. 
is uh, when we did Webster Hall. It was um, 2017, I think, right? 2016, yeah. 2016? Okay, so we did the two Boston shows at the Royale, and then the next night we're at Webster Hall, or maybe maybe those might be two, I'm not sure. Um, memorable for sev- several reasons. So one, that was probably after our longest hiatus, right? We came back and didn't know how well these shows were going to go. Obviously, as soon as tickets went on sale, we realized they were going to do pretty good. Yeah, um, We had sold out two nights in a row at the Royale, and I think those sold out in like 24 hours. And Less than that, yep. Yeah, Webster, yep. I don't know if Webster actually sold out, but it, if, if it didn't sell out, it was pretty darn packed, and that was a bigger venue. So I think Royale was probably maybe 1150 there, 1200 tickets there, and then Webster felt like 1,300, 1,400 people. Um, and I just love the setup. You can kind of see everybody. It's got that really nice balcony where you feel like everyone's kind of like um, surrounded you in that way. And you can really see everybody out in the crowd uh, to the point where like, I, I remember talking to people in the balcony while we were playing, like I could literally communicate with people. They were so close and it was such an energetic crowd. I've never seen, uh, you know, we've had shows that come close, but there was something about that where I looked out and I'm like, I think there's moments where at least 95% of the crowd is singing right now. Like I, like every single person felt like they were singing. It was so loud and so energetic. And I'd even look around and people were um, not facing us. They were like facing in at their group of friends and like singing at each other. And I'm like, this just feels like such a, such an interesting, crazy vibe. You know, all, all these people that um, maybe they had seen us before. Maybe they had never seen us in the past and they all ended up in New York somehow. And they're all here for the show. So just that, the energy in the crowd and the vibe was great. But then that was also the show where Andy proposed to Amanda. And he didn't tell us he was doing that, which is which I think is amazing. We had no idea he was gonna do that. And I think wasn't it also his birthday? It was Andy's birthday. And he he uh, actually said it when he came on the podcast, he decided. So the way he said it was the set started with the first five songs off of We Are The Only Friends We Have. And the first song is King of the Road. And he decided during King of the Road that he was going to propose to Amanda at the first break. And the first break wasn't until like Fear and Loathing, I think. So he decided he was going to propose to her. And then for the next, like... He was saying like the next four songs, he's like, fuck, man. So because it gave him enough time to get like nervous about it, you know? Yeah. So he decided last minute, like you said, like he so he didn't know either until like yeah. he on stage. He was like, it's my birthday. And he didn't know Amanda was going to be there. That was a huge surprise. He said there was in his mind, there was a zero percent, zero percent chance she was going to be there. She came there and, you know, yeah, it was. Yeah. So that's another. Yeah, reason. she surprised him. It was, it was such a cool moment, and I'll describe it as if no one's ever seen it before. Um, you know, we had brought out a cake and, you know, did a, whole, did a kind of had the whole crowd sing to him and whatnot. And then he grabbed the mic and started talking, literally, like, not like went up to the mic, like, literally had it in his hand and started just like getting emotional and like saying to the crowd how much this meant. And it was, it was wow. so interesting to watch. I remember, like, I, I just like stood up behind the drums because I'm like, I kind of want to be more of a part of this. I like stood up and like kind of came out to the end of the riser. Yeah. And I think I got a piece of cake. I think someone served me a piece of cake. So I was like eating cake 
and he's going up and you know andy andy is uh an emotional guy like he you know he's the type of guy that would give like a nice speech yeah you know totally. um i'm sure we all i'm sure we all have a little al- alcohol in us too so when he started going into this I'm like, this is this is so funny haha andy's giving a speech on his birthday and then like as he's going then he then he you know he like points up the balcony and calls out a man and it was like it reminded me of i don't know if you're familiar of the scene in um crocodile dundee where he's like trying to talk to the girl and there's like a crowd between them but the crowd's like helping him get to her and helping her get to him and all this stuff it like kind of felt like that like people cleared out so amanda could come to the front of the balcony and he's talking to her and then all of a sudden i could i just felt the trajectory of where he was going and i was like oh my Uh god i was like i was like is he really going here and then he just goes right into it and i just remember just like almost collapsing on the stage being like i can't believe that like i got the chills and everything it's like, I can't believe he fucking just went into that. It was so good. It was beautiful. It was so good. Um, so what's a, what's your most memorable show in the mid 2000s that, that stands out? Yeah. All right. I'll describe an exact moment, but I'll give a little context to it too. So we did a short tour with Saves the Day. Uh, we've done several tours with Saves the Day, but this one in particular was probably at the height of them as a band i'm trying to think of when it was it was definitely after stay um, what you are stay what you are came out yeah but before in reverie and, maybe uh, it was it was definitely pre in reverie okay. um and the, and to me at this time because i remember i mean i i did a fast week did a tour with them for six weeks you know uh i've seen piebald play with them several times and I've, you know, I've known those guys. I've seen them. You know, I, I remember seeing them when they started down at shows in New Jersey, like hardcore shows in New Jersey. So Sick. it was just so cool to see them blow up. And, and we were doing like two, three nights in a row at the same venue. That's and, so you know, cool. Like 2,000 2, people a night, you know, two, two, three nights in a row. I remember just being like, I can't believe how huge this band is. So um, cool. And then I love them. They're like, you know. They're wonderful. I, I loved seeing them live. I, I mean, those guys are so awesome. Yeah. Um, so we we did the east coast we did like the east coast leg of a tour with them and i just remember the show was being so awesome because it was just a different type of touring for us we were like you know playing these really you know these bigger venues we had our own room like really good hospitality we we're staying in the same cities that night and um handsome jim was on tour with us handsome jim carroll handsome jim carroll was was um filling in and i remember we got to house of blues in orlando and you know these shows are great their their crowd is like super energetic and a lot of them didn't know us so like you know there's there's definitely opening slots you play sometimes where nobody knows you and it really sucks these are great opening slots for us and um at the end of the show so we were on the stage at house of blues and it has like a really high ceiling you know somehow aaron and handsome jim without saying any words uh looked at each other and both knew we're going to throw our guitars at each other. Stop it. <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, it, I think Jim was playing bass. I, I want to say. Um, and so I didn't like, it was as if it was planned and I didn't know this was going to happen. I just look up and they literally both launched their guitars at least 20 feet in the air, like high. And, and they came within like a foot of hitting each other, which would have been a complete disaster. And then they both catch him and like hit the last note. <laughs> no and, way. And, I, and I, I remember coming off and be like, what did you guys talk about? They're like, we didn't, we literally just looked at each other and like gave a little like signal and just threw them. And I was like, that was fucking awesome. <laughs> that 
Is there a video or photo of this? That is insane. I don't I don't know. Not that I'm aware of. Uh that's insane. Yeah. So that was that's that, amazing. That was, that was a memorable moment, you know, with a Holy nice fun shit. Well, if anybody can find some footage of that, that would be incredible. Holy shit. Yes. Luke, get on yes. that, will you? Listen. I'm going for it, buddy. I'm <laughs> going for it. All right. Um, I, I, wrote, I wrote down, find footage for Dana. Wrote that down with your green pen, right? Yeah. My man. All right, dude. Um, you want to talk about uh, uh, Indie Drummer Collective for a minute? Absolutely. Pretty cool thing that's going on. Yeah. Yeah. So this is something that started almost a year ago. I want to say it was April of last year. Uh, Aaron Tate, um, good great friend of mine, great drummer. He was in Minus the Bears, well as several other bands too. Um, he started with a small group of people. I want to say when we first started, there was five or six of us. Uh, and they were all guys that I, I maybe semi knew. And if I didn't know them personally, they were in bands that I loved. Um, right. it was just, you know, these, these bands that I grew up listening to or that we played with various times. And the whole idea made so much sense to me. And it was so perfect at the time. It was, hey, we're just going to all, you know, pick a genre of music or pick a band and we'll all do drum covers and put them up at the same time. Just kind of, you know, say, hey, we're having fun, tag each other. And it's this, this kind of lighthearted thing. Um, to me at the time, it, it was kind of bringing like a few things together that I had wanted to do. One was... You know, I like playing drums. I never ever post content of me playing drums because it just, I don't know, there's something about it where I'm like, I, I couldn't cross the threshold of being like, I'm going to make drums and play. Cause, you know, I, if you're a drummer like me, and I'm sure there's a lot of drummers out there that feel this way too, like you kind of feel like an imposter at times. You're like, I'm not that good, you know, whatever. Cause you see people that are way better than you. And I think that exists for anything that anyone does in the world. You're always going to see people that are way better than you. Sure. And that can kind of be a, a barrier at times because you're like, well, people are seeing them and how awesome they are. And I can't do all that kind of stuff. So why would anyone want to see me, which is, you know, couldn't be further from the truth. Just a self-deprecating um, thing. Yeah. So I was like, okay, this is cool. If, if I'm doing it with people and there's kind of like this point to it, then I'll, I think I'm comfortable doing this. Um, yeah. So that was awesome. And then even just like um, wanting to connect with drummers and be social. Like it's, it's kind of funny. Drummers are, drummers are their own breed. <laughs> uh there's there's a lot of similarities between drummers of all different types you know there's just things that we have in common and i'm like this will be cool to have a peer group of drummers you know this is something that i, I you know i'm friends with a lot of drummers because i've toured with so many bands over the years but we don't uh, we don't necessarily keep in touch and have our own little thing going on i'm like this is just be a really fun thing um and so you know aaron and uh you know the the people at the core of this have done such a good job growing it. you know i think there's over 80 drummers in it now um and they're they've started a whole you know like instagram account and have a have grown a little bit of a following and keep increasing kind of you know the the types of drummers as, as well as some of the the names get kind of bigger and bigger as it as it's been progressing um it's just such a cool thing to see and uh, you know yeah. i think aaron's done a great job and and you know everyone else that's helping him do it it's been cool it's been a really cool thing to watch and uh, yeah, you've been putting out a lot of content. It exposes you. And, and you know, I, I got to see other drummers who I, I didn't even know about, you know what I mean? I, and I think that's what it's all about at the end of the day, right? You said it better than I could, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Luke. You know what the exciting thing is too? Like this is, 
it's all happening at a time where none of us are out there playing. Right. Which which you could even argue because none of us are out there playing, we've been able to do this. Right. And now that it's been established and set up, I'm like, I wonder what's going to happen when all of these bands that all, you know, all the bands that these drummers are in can go tour, you know, like I imagine going to certain cities and like, being able to be like, oh, like I'm gonna put like you know five drummers from the collective on my guest list and hang out with them in real life. Um, so that's exciting to me. And, and already there's a festival happening, which I'm sure you're aware of, Dana. It's it's happening in September in Alabama. Well, I hope it's happening at least. Um, yeah, and, certainly. And there's like you know five of us are are on that bill or, or yeah. are, are on the bill over the three days. And I'm like, this would be cool to like actually see some of these guys in person and get together. Yeah, Furnace Fest. Um, yep. I was just going to ask about that. So perfect transition, dude. Um, you think it'll happen? Hopefully. I think so. It seems like, you know, it seems like the, va- the everyone's getting vaccinated in a pretty, you know, timely manner. I know I'm on a list. I don't know when they'll get to my age group. I think I'm going to be one of the last ones, but I think as long as that happens before September and we're, you know, we're in what month are we in now? We're about to be. It's uh, March, almost April. We're about yeah. to be in April. It's been a um, year, over a year. This will probably point. come out in April. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. So we're still months away, and feels feels positive. Um, and that lineup is insane. And I will say, I've had several people who are from Boston reach out to me and say, "Hey, dude, um, you're going to be with Pieball that Furnace Fest, right?" And I'm like, "Yeah." They're like, "I already bought my tickets." to the show, the festival, and like I already got my plane tickets in a hotel. Now, pre-COVID, none of my none of these people would have been flying out to Alabama for a festival. So it just shows that people just mm-hmm. want and need live music again. You know what I mean? Not to mention the lineup is just yeah. fire, you know? But yeah. So uh, it's very... It's very optimistic, you know, to, it's very uh, encouraging to hear people like all these people say that. I just hope it happens, you know? Yeah, I've gotten the same response. Um, at least three different people when I announced it on my own social channel were like, oh, I'm going. Uh, that's this is great. I'm like, right. really? You're going to Alabama? Like, that's yeah, cool. Exactly. But I mean, looking at this lineup, I'm, it, the funny thing is when I first read this lineup, I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is so stacked because they don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> like that was the only thing I could think of. I'm like, this, this actually can't be a real bill. It was designed because there's no way it's going to happen. It just or it's going to be the most epic insane. fucking comeback festival ever. That's the way I see it because, yeah. because they had this, they already had this set up. It's already been postponed two or three times. Right. Yeah. It was supposed to happen last year. Right. In May. And then it was supposed to happen mm-hmm. in September and then it, right. Something like that or September, then May, whatever it was, Ooh. but. Yeah, we got asked to do it, and it was it, this was supposed to be last year, right? And it's been postponed a couple of times, but them officially announcing the lineup, and then people, but like I said, these, I got you know at least six different parties reached out to me, like, "Hey, I'm going to Furnace Fest, got my tickets, I'll see you there." And I'm like, "Holy shit, yeah, dude. Dana, did, Dana, did you get your tickets? Shut up! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are you gonna fly down?" I hope we see you there, dude. That'd be cool. I hate you so much. <laughs> You're the worst. You gotta uh, gotta hey, keep me uncomfortable. Have I told you about this new cowboy player we have? Yeah. Uh, no, you haven't. But you know what? No one's irreplaceable, Luke. That's okay. That's okay. I know. I know. I got to make sure I'm still in Pivald. 
Yeah, yeah. Hey, <laughs> yeah, that's it's right. It's only been 20 years. From what you said at the beginning, it sounds like Travis maybe is still on the fence. <laughs> no, he said he could not imagine doing it with anyone else. You stop that right now. It was on a podcast. All right, you weirdo. Um, Luke, thank you so much. Dana, I'm sure, I love I'm you, sure I'll, I'll talk to you soon. I love you too, man. You're the best, dude. Catching on irony Why you still have the chance What the fuck? Oh, hey. <laughs> it's <fucking> dip. <laughs> Whatever. I don't even care. Hey, let's... <laughs> let's wrap this one up. Let's tie a bow around this one and wrap it up. Yo, you better wrap up that gavel, B. Yo, <laughs> two-week nose podcast. Luke, I love you, man. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, man. Once again, if you want to enter that contest to win the, the, the piebald vinyl and stickers and all that stuff, hit me up on Instagram at Dana Fuggin B. D A N A F U G G E N B. Dana Fuggin B. That's Mui. Hit me up. Send me the screenshot of you showing that you have subscribed to this podcast and, and hit five stars, road review, combination of. Um, you'll get an entry. I just thought this right now. You will get one entry for. All the above. If you send me a screenshot of hitting five stars, boom, that's one entry. If you send a screenshot of writing a review, boom, that's another entry. If you send a uh, screenshot of you being subscribed, boom, that's three entries. You pick it up what I'm putting down. I'm good for it, and I will I will put it all and do a, a live raffle so that you can see how that works out on Instagram Live. And even if you're not watching the Instagram Live, you know what I mean? Like I, you know what I mean? Uh, I'll get it to you. So there you have it. Two-week notice podcast. And we're going to close out this episode with the song Don't Tell Me Nothing. Because I don't... Uh, I'm kind of bummed out I didn't bring that up on the interview. Because uh, if you're a hardcore Piebald fan and you saw that like first DVD that they made, there's really, really cool footage of them like, in the bus, like somebody else was driving, probably like John Cheese or Ryan McGaffigan or something. But they're all like sitting in the back and just jamming. It, it almost looks like they're writing that song. Like Luke's like drumming on a table and uh, somebody, Travis and or Aaron have a guitar and they're just singing, don't tell me nothing. I don't know. Oh, oh, you get the idea. I can't fucking sing. But um, so I'm going to play that song to close it out. And we're going to do a similar giveaway. Just a quick teaser for dashboard confessional uh chris caraba he's he's his episode will be out in a few weeks and i'm doing five giveaways for that one five vinyls i'm giving away just for that occasion so keep keep uh keep that in your mind but if you want this piebald vinyl you know what to do thank you so much love you all two ignos podcast Peace. Well, that's a mic.